You guys have your Bibles? There's two places you can mark this morning. Daniel chapter 3 and Romans chapter 12. So we have a number of expressions or sayings to express the same idea. Most of them you're probably familiar with. You've heard the saying, going against the grain, or swimming upstream, or swimming against the current, or being countercultural, or against the wind. All these statements kind of project and profess the same root idea to go against or to disagree with a prevailing or popularly held opinion or perspective, to act or behave contrary to the majority of others. I think now, as much as ever, we feel that sense of pressure to conform. Everybody's going this direction, and then we all have to go that direction. Everybody's going that direction, and everybody has to get on board with that thing. And I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I get whiplash from trying to follow all the different directions everybody's going in right now. And then the expectation, the social pressure that we have to agree, disagree, get on board, not get on board, It's a challenge. It's a very real pressure. And if we don't conform, then there are consequences for that, very real social consequences. So that can be something as simple as at work. It's a pressure you're under at work to go out for drinks after work or to do a certain thing or engage in a certain behavior. And, And our desire to fit in is very strong. Are you with me in that? I mean, we have this innate desire to fit in, to not stand out to not speak out because we don't want to be perceived as different. We don't want to be rejected. And there's all those complicated internal things that we struggle with. And I want to get that in your mind so you can kind of put yourselves in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Jewish guys now thrust into Babylonian culture and advancing in the ranks of Babylonian government. So we ended chapter 2 with Daniel and the guys praying about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and then the interpretation of that, and they get it. They tell Nebuchadnezzar, and we ended up with Nebuchadnezzar kind of falling down at Daniel's feet and expressing the reality of Daniel's God and them getting promoted. So these Jewish guys got promoted through the ranks past other people that have seniority and all that. Now they're rising up in the government. Daniel gets the promotion, and he says, hey, Hey, King, you know, how about my buddies too? Can they have promotions too? And King Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, sure, why not? So we would love to end with chapter two saying, and they all lived happily ever after in Babylonian government, but that's not the way it goes. Chapter three happens and we see a conflict arise. And that's inevitable. It's inevitable. When you held on to one very strong ideology and ours is God-given and God-driven, then you live in a world with a different ideology or a different base of knowledge, a different base for wisdom, then you inevitably come into conflict at some point. And sometimes we have to make decisions because we're all about safety. Whenever we drive somewhere, we pray for safety. That's not wrong. But sometimes we have to recognize that decisions we make because we believe in God are going to actually put us in danger. Now, we haven't had to really experience that on a grand scale, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced that in a very real way, as many Christians through history have as well. Renounce your faith or die. Basically, that's the issue. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. How many of you have read Daniel chapter 3 before? So you know the end. They're going to end up in the fiery furnace, and you know what comes from that. We're only going to do the first half 
of the chapter because I don't want to rush through it. It's a long chapter, and we'll take our time to really think things through and make some application. But no, we'll give you the setup today, and then we'll deal with the guys getting thrown in the fiery furnace next week. Are you okay with that? The cliffhanger. I love that. So here we are in chapter three. I'll go ahead and start reading, and then we'll spend a heavy amount of time on the front end, a heavy amount of time on the back end, and roll our way through the middle of verses one through 18 is where we'll be today. So verse one says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and it's width six cubits. That's for those of you note takers and who don't use ancient systems of measurement. It's 90 feet and nine feet. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So that's our introduction to chapter three. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know how much time has passed between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Some would say as few as two years. Some would say as many as 20 years. But we know chronologically that chapter three comes after the events of chapter two. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been promoted. They're now serving higher up in Babylonian government. We see them holding that place here in chapter three. But some say that this event, the setting up of Nebuchadnezzar's image is connected to a time when he actually sacked Jerusalem. And to commemorate that victory, he sets up this image. Others would say that it's connected to a time when Nebuchadnezzar's power was challenged. There was an uprising and he put it down. And this event is concurrent with that. But we don't know from the Bible. There's no reason given. It's just that he builds this image, gives us some specs about it. We don't know how much time has passed. Again, it could be as much as 20 years. So that would make our 18-year-olds now 38 years old. So don't picture them as young teenagers anymore. Remember, Daniel's about 80-some years old when he gets thrown to the lions. So time is passing. We just don't know exactly how much. So what's the image of? I mean, all we know is Nebuchadnezzar makes this image. We don't know what it's of. Could be of his god, the god Marduk. And that's the God, the prevailing God, the God of war for the Babylonians. And if it was connected to a commemorative event where they conquered Jerusalem, it would be a very common thing. You know, war back then was a war of the gods, not of the military forces. So if your God was stronger than their God, you would win the war. You'd sack their God's house. You'd take all their God's stuff and you'd say, na 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 na, and then you'd bring their stuff back to your God's house as a demonstration that your God is stronger than their God. And then you dedicate it all to your God. And it was a battle of the gods. So if that's true, and this was done around the time, be about 11 years after the dream interpretation, when Babylon actually conquered Jerusalem, then it could be this dedication of all this stuff to the God Marduk, the God of war. It could be that this statue is not of a God, or at least the God Marduk, could be a statue of who? Nebuchadnezzar could be a giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which would certainly be in line with his pride. I mean, this was not a guy who was known for his humility. And it could be a direct response, a rebellious response to the dream that was shared with Daniel and how Daniel gave the interpretation. Remember in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is what? He's the head of gold. But what do we see here? The statue is not just the head of gold. The whole thing is of gold. So it could be that Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what? Some time has passed. I'm getting stronger, not weaker. I don't see any inferior group that's going to come and conquer me. Maybe the dream was wrong. Maybe I'm going to choose to be rebellious against that. And I think my kingdom's going to last forever. I mean, I'm so strong right now. Isn't that how we get? I'm so strong right now. I feel immortal. 
teenagers feel that way. I'm in more, nothing can hurt me until they have their first car accident. Then they realize, ah, life happens and not always so easy. So things happen. But at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, now he builds the whole thing. I'm not satisfied with just being the head of gold. It's all about me. The whole statue is going to be gold. And think about this. He sets it up in the plain of Dura. So you could see this thing. It's 90 feet tall. That's about the height if you stacked two tractor trailers end on end. So it's not a small statue. It's made of probably gold overlaid wood. It's carved out of wood made of overlaid with gold. And so you could see this thing shining in the Middle Eastern sun for miles probably. When you make a statue, when you make an image, you have to make some decisions. And there's a reason that the word imagination has at its root the word image. Because if you want to make something, what do you first have to do? You have to imagine it. You have to see it in your mind before you can actually create it. So before this image gets made, whatever the image is of, Nebuchadnezzar had to have the idea in his mind. He had to be able to imagine it. So when Nebuchadnezzar imagines himself, or when he imagines his kingdom, he imagines it with gold, not brass or bronze. He imagines it gold, which would say something. Because when you make an image of yourself, you're saying something about yourself. It's like a snapshot, like an Instagram snapshot. How many of you have ever had a picture taken of you and said, ooh, I don't like that picture? Ooh, erase that, erase that. Let's take another one. I wasn't smiling in that picture. It was the bad side of me. I only have bad sides, so it doesn't really relevant to me. But we do that. We want to control. Listen carefully. We want to control how people think about us. We want to control the image we set up of ourselves because it says something about us. We want our image to say, look how beautiful I am all the time. I look like this all the time, which is really a lie because it's just a snapshot because we're real human beings. Nebuchadnezzar is a real human being who has good days and bad days and he gets angry and he gets all the gamut of human emotion. But in the image, how he wants everybody else to see him, gold, always shining, very wealthy, very powerful. And was this a little short statue or was it a big tall one? Now, if it's a human being, if it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, 90 feet tall, so nine stories tall by nine feet wide, that's not consistent with human proportions or be really super distorted. So it could be that it was a pedestal with the image of Nebuchadnezzar on top of it that would account for some of the discrepancies in size. But it's a ginormous statue, which says something else too. You ever been in the presence of some huge edifice, some huge building or some huge statue? And it's overwhelming. It gives a sense of awe. So you're meant to come to this statue. What Nebuchadnezzar is communicating is my kingdom is represented by wealth and power and awe. That's what you're supposed to know about me. And statues emphasize certain things and de-emphasize others, just like pictures. On your Facebook page, you control very carefully the pictures that are there, don't you? You want to emphasize how good of a cook you are and de-emphasize your lousy days. We show the best of ourselves. How many are familiar with the statue of David, Michelangelo's statue of David? Probably the most famous statue ever made. And it's cool history behind that statue. But you think about the life of David, and most statues or representations of David show him at what time in his life. Can you guess? What was his most victorious moment? Goliath. So you would think that a statue of David would be made that would show him holding Goliath's head and he's got the sword and that's how statues of David look because it pictures a certain time in his life. 
But the statue of David that Michelangelo carved is unique because it's David as a shepherd boy, and it shows a different side of him. So it's an interesting thing when you think about images and how we present ourselves and how Nebuchadnezzar is presenting himself, the materials used, you know, what the statue looked like, what it represented, and all the message it was meant to convey. And notice, this is not just a private situation, it's public. So he's making this whole thing is very public. And verse 2 says, so King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps or the princes. These are just all ancient names for the who's who of the Babylonian government administration. Gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges or the law officials, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So God repeats that. and goes through the whole list twice just so we know who's there. This is the guest list. And it's a real who's who of Babylonian government. And you have to know that, that this is information God is telling us so that we understand. If you read this chapter, I think 15 times, Nebuchadnezzar's name is mentioned. Nebuchadnezzar's doing this. Remember, with the dream, he was just a passive participant. Now, he's the mover and the shaker. He's made the image, and he's inviting all these people, all the who's who. And 15 times his name is mentioned. Do you know whose name is missing in this chapter? Did I say it already? Daniel? By the end of the chapter, we're going to go, hey, wait a second. Where's Daniel? Daniel is notoriously absent from this chapter. And we'll talk about why that is and speculate on that later on, probably next week. But just recognize, sometimes it's about what's there and sometimes it's about what's missing. So verse four, then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So we know the idol is set up. We know the image is set up. We've talked about kind of what the message is that's being communicated. What's the purpose? Why is he setting this up? Well, now we know this section gives us the purpose. Was it art appreciation? I mean, was all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar being a benefactor and saying, you know, I want to support the local Babylonian arts, so I'm going to commission the building of a statue for everybody to appreciate the sculpture. No, that's not why. Is it an event commemoration? Possibly, but we don't know for sure. But what we do know, it is a unification of national worship. It's a combination, and in their day, it's a combination of religion with state government. So at the head of everything, the head of the whole world at this time is Nebuchadnezzar. All the power, all the sovereignty, he's the lawmaker. As soon as he says it, it becomes law. He is a representative of the whole state, the empire, and he decides what the religion's going to be. So he's doing this. Did you notice it says there's all kinds of nations and peoples and tongues? At this time, interestingly, Babylon was very large for a city of this time, some 200 square miles, about the size of Chicago, and quite a multicultural, multinational, 
You had Jews there. You had people, when they conquered someone, they would bring, import some of the people in. So you had this big internationally kind of cultural center there in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, to strengthen his government, to strengthen his sovereignty, to strengthen his power, he's calling everyone under threat to be unified in worship. And if you don't, there's consequences. Now, we're familiar with the statement separation of church and state. You've heard that before, right? But it's not really spelled out implicitly in our, or explicitly in our Declaration of Independence or our Constitution. It's read into it through the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So when we talk about separation of church and state, and I've had this conversation with many people, the understanding we've been given is that's to protect the state from the church. But it's opposite that. When they wrote the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, separation of church and state, and Thomas Jefferson is credited with being the voice behind this, was meant to protect the church from the state. So the guy who helped push Jefferson toward this was named Roger Williams. I think he was the founder of Rhode Island, if I remember my facts correctly. And he said, forced worship is a stench in the nostrils of God. Like you can't force people to worship because where does worship happen? Happens in the heart. You know, every so often I quote this, a couple of parents, they punish their child. They say, we want you to go sit in timeout. And they put him in timeout. And the child sits there begrudgingly, sits in the chair and says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You can force people to bow down to your ideology, to your thinking, to your ways, but you can miss their heart. You can make do it with their body, but you can miss the heart completely. The state in America, the state was not supposed to be able to control how the church decided to worship. You think about other empires or other world-dominating forces, the one that we're most familiar with would be Hitler and Nazism. I read this. This is just from Wikipedia. Nazism wanted to transform the subjective consciousness of the German people, their attitudes, values, and mentalities into a single-minded, obedient national community. The Nazis believed they would therefore have to replace class, religious, and regional alliances. Under the Nazification process, Hitler attempted to create a unified church, the Protestant Reich Church, from Germany's 28 existing Protestant churches. So at that time, the church was somewhat divided. You had 28 different denominations. It weakened the church, and that offered the opportunity for Hitler to come in and say, I'm going to unify the church under one national church. It didn't work because of guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who started the Confessing Church and said that we ain't bowing down to a national religion because we have God and we have the Bible. So Hitler didn't have a statue. He had a flag. And the symbol was, you know it, the swastika. Bow down to that. And ultimately bow down to that connected to Hitler. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was sort of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of his day. Anybody know who Alexander Hamilton is? One of our founding fathers, a statesman, the first U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, he's attributed with the saying, if you stand for nothing, then you will fall for anything. A couple other people have been attributed with quoting that, but it goes back to him. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. So Nebuchadnezzar has this who's who. It's the Babylonian National Convention. And they even have an anthem. There's music that plays. When the music plays, everybody's supposed to bow down to the anthem and worship the God. And who's the God who's being worshiped? It's Nebuchadnezzar. 
whatever he says goes. And if you don't play the part, if you don't toe the line, then there's also a threat. So there's an object of worship that's not God. Look, behind all this, this is not about mask wearing or no mask wearing. This is about worshiping anything created. Nebuchadnezzar has a mind that was created by God. I have a mind that was created by God. I was created by God. You were created by God. Charles Darwin was created by God. There's two categories in planet Earth, creation and creator. Let me tell you which one you're not in. There is one creator, and the big lie that we face on planet Earth is to exchange the truth of God for the lie. When we exchange the truth of God that there is a God, He's real, and he's living, and he's sovereign, and he's eternal. When we exchange that truth, when we reject God, all we're left with is worship of the created thing. And then that begins to deteriorate human culture because we're not meant to worship the created, but the creator. And that's what happened in the days of Paul writing to the Romans. And that's what the bottom line is for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the people who love to ride on the coattails of the power. All the other people are more than happy to bow down because Nebuchadnezzar is their source of identity and power. We live in a day when everybody wants to set up statues for us to worship and tear down other statues that we're not supposed to worship. Tell us what to believe. Tell us what to think. One guy I read said this, the worship of the image, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the worship of the image was intended to be an expression of political solidarity and loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar rather than an intended act of religious persecution. So he's just trying to get them to be politically solidified and unified. It was, in effect, a saluting of the flag. So all the people in my cabinet, all the people that serve me, we're all going to salute the flag, worship the image, in a context where religion and national culture were interrelated, all this stuff intermingled. So verse 7 says, at that time... When all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody's doing it. Have you ever had that moment in your life? I asked earlier, mentioned it in the introduction. Have you ever had a time when you would look back and say, you know what? I caved in. I disappointed myself. You ever done it? People were doing things. Everybody was doing it. You got pulled in a direction. Inside, something was telling you, oh, I shouldn't do it. But then I didn't want to seem like a jerk or I didn't want to be rejected. So I did it and then went, oh, why did I do that? Anybody know that feeling? Now intensify that by a thousand because it probably wasn't life or death for you. It was probably just popularity. I mean, our education system, our government system, Republican Party doesn't get to decide what I think. Democratic Party doesn't get to decide what I think. Harvard doesn't get to decide what I think. University of Virginia doesn't get to decide what I think. Who gets to decide what I think? Not me. God gets to decide what I think. I have a God who tells me what he created me to be, who tells me what truth is, because my vision is skewed because I'm part of the creation. I have to go outside of myself to know what's right and wrong and true and untrue and how to handle relationships and how to deal with people and what family's all about and what marriage is all about and what being human is all about and what eternity is all about. I got to go outside of me because no one else in the creation can tell me either. We're all in the same boat, as it were. But I've caved and I've gone, why do I care what they think? 
Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why does it mean so much to me to be accepted by that person and do something that's displeasing to God just to bow down to them to make them accept me? And I think we've all felt that way. We've all experienced that. You know, in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the Antichrist. That same spirit that was in Hitler and the same spirit that was in Nebuchadnezzar and in Alexander the Great, that spirit of, I am God, you should worship me. At this time on planet Earth, Nebuchadnezzar, from their standpoint, was God. And oftentimes emperors were worshipped as gods. And he was glad to accept that. And the Antichrist will set up, in the final world government, the Antichrist will, in that same spirit, set up an image of himself, whoever he is, and demand to be worshipped as what? As God. They'll set that image up in the temple in Jerusalem and expect to be, demand to be worshipped as God. Look out when that happens. So, therefore, verse 8, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So these guys come forward, the music goes, and everybody bows down, and these Chaldeans are evidently near in the crowd, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody's got their faces down in front of this statue, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there, feeling really awkward, I'm sure. And these guys that are next to them kind of go, oh, wait a second, these guys aren't bowing down. I found a picture, really kind of interesting picture During Nazi Germany, everybody is saluting Hitler. The picture is just faces in a crowd, and they're all saluting. And there's one guy in the crowd standing there with his arms crossed. And I thought, man, I would love to know more about that picture. Such an interesting picture. But that would have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else is bowing down, and they're just there with their arms crossed. And they get noticed. Now, up until this point, I imagine, you know, for 10 years, 11 years, 20 years, however long it's been, These guys are just faithful servants. Babylon is a better place because of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're doing their job. They're serving in the government, going along with things, and no conflict until they're asked to worship the state, the Babylonian state. And now we got a conflict. And they get noticed. And they come to the king and say, oh, king, you're the best. You're the man. We worship you. We're loyal to you, buddy. You know, we're on your side but we found some guys that aren't. What do you think's behind this for them? You think maybe there's a little jealousy? The Chaldeans are connected to Babylonian history, Babylonian culture. So I got to be thinking, you know, here are these young Jewish upstarts show up and they interpret the dream and they save everybody's neck and then they get promoted. And I'm thinking these guys are a little bit jealous. So I think they were probably looking for, have you ever experienced that? The world is looking for an opportunity just to point the finger at you as a Christian. Just to say, oh, you know, you Christians, you do this or you don't do that, just to find fault with you. And that may be maybe some jealousy in here because they come to the king and they said, king, here's what you said. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You want their names? They're name dropping. We'll tell you who they are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
These men, O king, have not paid due regard to who? To you. Ha, how dare they? They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. These guys are totally sucking up to Nebuchadnezzar and selling out, throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under the bus. Again, I think jealousy is a motive. And notice how they were appealing to Nebuchadnezzar. You, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, they don't respect you. They're not following you. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh, how dare they? How dare they? And notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't set out to tear the statue down. They just refused to bow to it, which is actually, I think, even better. Statues can get torn down without ever changing people's hearts. Don't ever settle for less than connecting with the heart. Why don't these guys bow down? Because God's got their heart. Because God has their heart, they're not going to bow down to anything else. So now, how is Nebuchadnezzar going to respond to this? Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, that's what you'd expect, right? Gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Imagine the scene if they stronghold them and bring them forward. I don't know. Did they resist? Did they not resist? Maybe they didn't even resist at all. They just kind of willingly went. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. In other words, guys, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm feeling generous today. I'm feeling merciful today. So let's pretend that didn't happen. We'll start over again. We'll call it a do-over. We're going to play the music again. We're going to cue the tape. And once it plays, then you guys can bow down. You know that it's not difficult. It's not complicated. It's not confusing. You know what to do. All you got to do is do it. Don't play any games. Don't get fancy. Just fall in line. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want to have to do this to them. Didn't want to have to throw them in the fiery furnace. So he says, look, I'm going to give you a second chance. Great. You'll do it. Everything's fine. We'll pretend it never happened. But he says, if you don't worship, that's what it's always about. It's about worship. If you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Quite a change in song for Nebuchadnezzar from the end of chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar was on his face and he's worshiping Daniel because Daniel's God could read minds. So evidently, Nebuchadnezzar had a religious experience. He may have even had a revelation of the true and living God. But what he didn't have was the conversion. You can have a religious experience without having a conversion. Because evidently now, Nebuchadnezzar, enough time has passed, he's gained enough strength that he's forgotten how anxious he was about the dream. He's forgotten about what the dream said. He thinks he's going to live forever. He thinks he's the man. And he says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Look at how powerful he feels. And you know what? Listen very carefully. This is the danger of some of these social media platforms. He surrounded himself with people that will tell him how awesome he is. And he's begun to believe his own press. I remember hearing 
a pastor, a well-known pastor in the Calvary Chapel movement, church of 24,000 people, just growing. They called him, says, weapon of mass instruction. Great Bible teacher, and he fell into pornography, adultery, just basically had to step down from ministry and fell into total obscurity. And while that was going down, he had had a conversation with another pastor on the phone, and he began to say, you know, the church became so great, and I became this great pastor. And his friend said to him, who told you you were great? And it was just a jarring moment because he began to believe that he was something and nothing could touch him. And Nebuchadnezzar is in that place. So God is going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar, just like God deals with anyone who succumbs to human pride. When the creation begins to feel greater than the creator, we've got problems. As we say, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor, began to create God in the image we want. So that's where Nebuchadnezzar is, and you get a sense of that. Man, if you guys don't bow down, who's going to deliver you? He's forgotten about the mind-reading God who knew his dream and told him the future of all human empires. Now, one more question before we go on. And again, I'm going to stretch your brain here, and I want you to stretch with me. So wake up, smell the coffee, get ready, because I'm going to ask you to think a little bit deeper than just superficial. Are you ready? Say amen if you're ready. All right. We said these guys were carted away from Jerusalem in about 605 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. The best and the brightest carried away 605 BC. They lived, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were born under the reign of a guy named King Josiah in Jerusalem. Now, you know, in Israel, in the north, in Jerusalem, in the south, there have been a string. In the north, there was nothing but bad kings, idolatrous, idol-worshiping kings, kings that served other gods, that rejected, turned their back on the true God, and they paid for it. Ahab and Jezebel in the north. We had Manasseh, King Manasseh in the south in Judah. Lots of bad stuff happening. But Josiah comes on the scene as an eight-year-old king. He gets inaugurated at eight years old. At 16, by the way, he's inaugurated in 640 BC is when he becomes king. So 632 BC, he starts reforming Israel. They discover the word of God in the temple. They hadn't read God's word in years. And they found it in the temple. Go, hey, what's this? I don't know. It looks like the Bible to me. Haven't seen one of those in a while. And they said, well, we should probably read it. Hey, that's a good idea. Let's blow the dust off it. Let's read it. Wow, it says something about something called a Passover. We should probably do that. Yeah, reinstitute the Passover. All these reforms are happening. Starts when he's 16. So from 640, Daniel is probably born around 620, right when all these reforms are really taking root in Judah. So I just thought that was kind of cool that these guys are born into a national revival in Jerusalem before they get carted off. Now, the reason I tell you all that is I'm going to quote you something from Second Chronicles that talks about what Daniel's parents may have gone through. Are you ready? Just listen to me. I'm going to read it to you. Know that it's Second Chronicles chapter 34. Then the king, King Josiah, sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, not a statue, with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, great and small. It sounds parallel, doesn't it? 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart and soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. Josiah has a personal revival. He says, you know what? I've read the word of God and I am making a personal commitment to live my life for the God of the Bible, the God of the Torah, which is our God as well. And then verse 32, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand because it's all people, great and small. It's possible, maybe even probable, that Daniel's parents were part of that meeting. They watched Josiah make this personal commitment. They too said, you know what? We're with you. We make this personal commitment. We're going to raise our kids to know the Lord. Not just take them to church and then not live it at home. We're going to actually live for God. We're going to read his word together. And he says it right here. They all made a stand. Remember what I said earlier, Alexander Hamilton? If you don't stand for something, then you're liable to fall for anything. How is it, why is it that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel have such a strong testimony, have such a strong courage in Babylon? Because they'd already made a stand. Their families had already made a stand. So they are drawing on that background. What you're willing to bow for will tell you who your idol is. Because there's some things you go, no, I'm not bound to that. Now that doesn't mean anything to me. Oh, it's going to cost me my job. If I say something about God, ooh, maybe I'll bow for that. Or, oh, it's going to cost me some popularity. Ooh, it might cost me this. Everything has a cost. And the cost you aren't willing to deal with will tell you who your idol is. There's going to be a cost for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just trust that God is able to cover the cost. Now watch what happens. So the king gives them the ultimatum. All right, we're going to go at this again. Here's your chance. So what are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to do? Okay, king, we're sorry. Uh, we didn't mean it. We don't want to cause any trouble. Let's see. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, in other words, if you've got to throw us in the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand O king, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I imagine that those verses have been underlined in countless Bibles over countless centuries by countless Christians that have faced countless numbers of difficult situations and made difficult decisions. These verses, we read them and we think about these guys. This is why we love Daniel chapter 3. Because we read that and we go, you know, I want some of that. I want to have that kind of fortitude where I cannot be intimidated. There's nothing that can buy my worship. No fear, no intimidation. That I am set and steadfast with God. Romans 12. Paul writes to the Romans. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world or any part of it. Anything that originates in this world, anything that comes from this world, anything that leads to worldliness, 
Do not be shoved into the world's mold for you, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I think that speaks to us as loudly today. I think that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are living by. So look, we have no need to answer you. Why? Because they answer to God. I don't have to explain it to you. We don't have to be careful how we talk to you about this. We're going to tell you the truth and we're going to tell it to you straight. doesn't matter how much you threaten us, we're not bound down. Sorry. We love you, but we ain't bound down to you. You're not God. Sorry. You're not God. If you need to throw us in the furnace, our faith says we have a God who we know is a miracle-working God. So it's as easy for him to rescue us from the fiery furnace. We have no doubt he can do that. But then it's the next part. We love that part. We're going to stop there. God's going to rescue us. You know, yeah, that preach is great. The next verse, you don't find on a lot of refrigerator magnets. But if not, wait a second, are they doubting? What's the problem? Are they? No, they don't worship their faith. They worship a true and living God who's sovereign in their lives and who makes decisions. And sometimes he rescues for his purposes and sometimes he doesn't for his purposes. Sometimes God is glorified by our suffering. Our emblem is not a statue. God says, no idols of me. What do we look at? Look at a person, a living, breathing person. If we have an image of God, it shows us one-dimensional. We're going to show God as happy and gracious all the time. And our image of him won't show that he's just and that he gets angry. We don't like that God. We like the God who loves us and has a wonderful purpose for our lives. And there's that God. But God says, don't make any statues of me because it's a snapshot and you'll never capture the totality of me in a statue. So when God wants to show us what he's like, he doesn't say, I want you to build a statue. He says, I'm going to give you my son and I want you to look at him. I want you to watch how he treats lepers and I want you to watch how he treats women and I want you to watch how he deals with this and how he deals with that and how he interacts with people. And then when Jesus says, I'm going to leave you something to commemorate me by, he doesn't say, build me a statue. So I'm going to leave you a family meal. You want to remember me? It's when a family gets together and shares a meal and remembers me, breaks bread in my name, remembers my sacrifice. That's when I'm going to leave you to remember me, to commemorate. So, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. But if not, that makes us go, well, I don't know, maybe God isn't real. I asked God to do this. I thought he would do that. I asked God to heal. He didn't heal. I asked God to fix, and he didn't fix. I asked God to do, and he didn't do. Now I'm not sure God even exists. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, God, we believe that you are sovereign. You have a plan for our lives, and your plan is good, and your plan is best, and we live for your purposes. And it doesn't matter what happens to me on planet Earth. There is nothing that could happen that would get me to worship anything created. I believe in you and you alone. And I'll go to my grave saying that very same thing. You know, sometimes we live in that day where people get so open-minded that their brains fall out. Isn't that our day where people are running to and fro, trying to figure out what's what and who's who, and and so open-minded that people will fall for anything? And you watch the news and you go, what am I watching? What is happening around me? Because there's no foundation. 
And whatever people say, well, you bow to this, you bow to my ideology, then people go, oh, okay, I'm bowing over here and I'm bowing over there. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't know God, the true and living God, you're in a world of trouble. Your life will be so up and down and here and there and so lacking foundation. Opioid crisis is getting worse. I just read that, opioid addiction, suicide, all this stuff happening in the midst of coronavirus. Where would we be? And what would I be bowing to? I know what I'd be bowing to if I didn't have God. But serving that master has set me free from every other master in my life. And I'm thankful. I don't know what comes next, church, but we know who we serve. Amen? Amen.